Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Welcome. We have been going through a series on the 10 treasures of the Christian fanatic and exploring the idea that there are natural consequential advantages to just surrendering everything to Christ, to going all in, to not holding back, to being fanatical, to being obsessive, to being devoted to Jesus. And we've been looking at these again, not as rewards, but just as advantages, because when you dwell in Christ, that is where these things are. And we've been looking at uh, purpose of delight was the first one, and then an identity of substance, and then a stability of conviction, and then a character of nobility, and then a life of love, a perspective on people, a humility of mind, a joy in trials, and last week was a community of acceptance. And I don't know about you, but it's been really, I've really enjoyed just looking at these again, because it's been really exciting just to think about the truth of these things. These are all things that are, they exist. They're not rewards. They're not vain hopes. These are things that are actually present the reality of many of these are present for all believers right now but sort of the impact of these are greater for those who really dig in and surrender all to jesus who live a life by faith counting on jesus to be everything he says he is because then you feel the reflection of these even more truly and here we are we've made it all the way to number 10 yeah so you you guys look like you want to give me a drum roll go ahead and give me a drum roll there you go Not going to tell you yet. Oh. Nice drum roll, though. I feel cheated. Don't think you're getting that again. Yeah, <laughs> we really. No, I'll bring it up in a second. I do. It was. It was a little premature. It was my fault. But I do want to say that this is this is arguably the most exciting one. I said arguably, and you may argue about it in your groups and amongst one another. But this is arguably the most exciting one. The most significant treasure the thing that makes the rest of it sort of matter in one sense i i would i would argue between that and the first one which is the purpose of delight but the one tonight is a future but there's an ellipsis here isn't there so there's more to this but i want to talk a little bit about a future first yeah so the drum roll is really you're gonna have to do a drum roll for a long time uh, so I just want to, first I want to talk about just in general a future because that's not, that is an advantage in itself that's a treasure. Not everybody else has a confidence of having any future. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, in fact, there's a lot of philosophies out there which sort of deny that there is any sense of progression, that there is anything other than a series of moments that don't have any sort of cohesive nature to them. There's a lot of philosophies which think that there isn't any sort of purpose or direction or heading or progression to anything. It's just a bunch of random sequence of events surrounding our random chemical processes. There's no real identity. There's no real time is an illusion. Therefore, there's no real future. There just is whatever it is. But for the believer, we know that there's actually such a thing as destiny. We know that there's actually such a thing as a, a story that's been written and moving forward. And I think it could be exciting and, and really comforting to recognize that we are on a journey which has a destination. 
And it has a progression. And nothing is wasted and nothing is random and nothing is happenstance. And so even before we get to the future of what, which is very exciting, just the idea that we know as believers, the Christian fanatic knows he believes in a God who's in control of the universe, who's the author of the story. We know that there is a future, that there's a history of the world that we're tied to. And there's a present that we are part of now. And there's a future to our story. It doesn't just end here. This isn't it. And that gives meaning to everything that happens to us today. There's a really interesting psalm, Psalm 139. David says this. He says, For you, meaning God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. From God's perspective, there is a destiny. There is an ordination. There is a, a projection. There is a future. There is a journey. There is a path that you will walk. We have a future and we have a progression. We are more than a series of events without identity. We are more than a random accident of nature in the universe. We were created by God and the God who created us for life also created a life for us. We are in fact part of a great story. And it's God's story. You aren't just out there alone, a speck, an accident, a blip that will mean nothing in the course of the universe because in a hundred years, a thousand years, or ten years, no one will remember you. You are part of a huge cosmic grand story by God. You know, I know we talk about being in the moment and sometimes I encourage that. There's a benefit to that. Being in the moment is helpful because this moment does matter and it helps us remember not to get distracted by things that may never happen, good or bad. And it's good to be in the moment but there's a great deal of meaning and comfort and significance in knowing that there's a future for us, that there's a place we're headed, that there's a place that all these moments together lead us to. I do want to say, as we look at this, I just want to, to throw in this note because I, I want you to take an opportunity to have a moment, to have the ability right now to really begin to dig into and find that place of comfort and excitement in the idea that you're part of a grand story that's been written. But in order to do that, I do want to address one fear that comes up for a lot of us. And that's the question of whether our choices matter, whether the things we do have any significance. Because if God has preordained the days of our life, if he's set out a path for us to walk, if he's already given us a future and knows what it is before we get there, then what does it matter? What, what are our choices? And here's what I want to tell you I understand before we move forward. And I want to give you just this thought to, to maybe give you a chance to enjoy the ordained part of it. But let me calm your fears a little bit. Scripture says two things. It says a lot of things, but it says two things very clearly. And one of them is what we see here. It says that God has a plan. He has a story. He has, he's taken your life and he's written it in this story. And there is, a, there is a path and there is a destiny for you. And there is a purpose and there is a future for you. And that is one side Scripture also tells us that our choices matter. 
that our choices have consequence and significance to such a degree that God holds us accountable for the choices we make. If they mattered not at all, if they didn't impact anything at all, if they were of no consequence literally, then God would have no room or reason to hold us accountable for those choices. And you may ask, how do these two things fit together? Because scripture is very clear about the choices you have. And the exhortation for you to recognize your choices truly matter. And it's also very clear about the sovereignty of God and the fact that he's in control of everything and nothing happens that he doesn't already know and perhaps hasn't even already scripted. And you say, how can these two things both be true? And I say this to you. I don't know. But they are. I think the way to think of it is is as if these are just two pieces in a 10 trillion piece jigsaw puzzle and we don't have the box cover. So we don't know what the final picture is. We just have this mammoth puzzle and these two pieces both fit in the puzzle somewhere, but we don't have the capacity to see the big picture into which they all fit, but God does. It's no problem for him. So both pieces are true. So don't, do not think that by embracing the idea that you have a future, that God has laid it out, that it means somehow that what you do doesn't matter. It's not what I'm saying. But having made that caveat, I want us to recognize the truth of a, of a future, of a destiny. That there's a, a thread to the story of our lives. There's a, a through point. That there's a journey. The fact that we can even describe our lives as a story. A story isn't just a sequence of random events. It's a progression. Good stories have a progression. They have an arc. The character moves through. So also do you. You have a future and you have a direction. You know, it's part of the beauty of the gospel that on the one hand, we're part of this tremendous cosmic story. The gospel tells us that the cosmic story of the universe is frankly so much bigger than you that it's crazy that we even think it matters who we are. (laughs) The cosmic story of the universe is huge with trillions and trillions of characters and hundreds of trillions of subplots and interactions. It is so much bigger than you. Take off of yourself the weight to be the hero of everybody's story. And yet, at the same time, somehow amazingly, the gospel also reminds us and tells us over and over that somehow God, as the author of the story, says that you are very important to this story. He says that the story is vastly bigger than you, encompassing all of the universe and all of humanity. And then God looks you squarely in the eye and says, but it wouldn't be the same without you. You are an important piece of this story. And I have not written you to be an unimportant part of the story. You are not a part that can be edited out. You are important to me, says God. And this grand cosmic story, which is so much bigger than you, yet somehow you are an important part of. And as we see it this way, we begin to realize that what God is offering us is not just a future not just a direction. Because honestly, stories can also have really terrible endings. (laughs) They can end with a future that is desperate and despairing and horrid, even horrific. But we realize this is not just a future, but this is a future envisioned by a particular author. 
God is a particular kind of writer, a particular kind of creator. And the question becomes, what kind of author is he? And what kind of future does that mean that we have? And the truth is this. It says in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We're told not only that God wants us to abound in hope, but he wants us to abound in hope. Why? Because that's who he is. Because he is the God of hope. He's not. So as he writes a story, what's the story he's going to write? It's a future of hope. What does that mean, really? We have a future. What does it mean to have a future of hope? Well, obviously, on one level, it means that our future is hopeful. It means we have something to look forward to. It means there's something to look to that is positive. And I want you to see this, and I want you to see that this has always been the case. The story that God presents to us, the way that God sees the universe, the way that God has created everything, a big piece of that story, not all of it, but a big piece of that story is told through the scriptures. It gives us a, a history that is, that is given to us to show us how what we know about the world is part of this cosmic story. Now, there are parts of the world that are not in the scripture. It doesn't mean they're not part of the story. This was written to specific people and has a certain relevance there. But it is interesting to see in the story of scripture that hope is woven into it from the beginning. From the very beginning, we see that the story is one of hope. We see that, in fact, all scripture is written to give us hope, to teach us about hope, to show us that we have a future of hope. So you guys know the story. We've talked about it many times. Never hurts to sum it up again. God creates the universe. And as he creates the universe, he creates this world. And as he creates this world, he creates humanity and all of the other living creatures. And he creates humanity to take care of all the other living creatures and to enjoy their fellowship with God and to represent God and to walk with God and work with God. And they have purpose and they have meaning and they have present and they have future. They have a future of ongoing eternal work with God. It tells us that right at the beginning, you will have eat of the tree of life. You will live forever. You will be with me and you will be taking care of the world. And we see a future and a hope and a purpose. But then we see the fall. We see the sin. We see people turn from God. We see, as we've already discussed, that they decided that their purpose to delight in God could be improved upon that they could find a purpose of delight somewhere else. They could delight in something else. Something as simple and meaningless as a piece of fruit becomes their obsessive approach. Thanks to the deceit of the serpent, they decide if we could delight in this fruit and it'll be just as good as God. Which when you think about it that way is amazing. That a fig or an apple, whatever you think, I go with fig, that a fig could ever be as delightful as God. I like Fig Newtons, but not that much. <laughs> and yet that's where they went. And in doing so, the whole universe changes. The, the humanity and the entire universe in many ways is separated from this purpose of delight in God. And as part of this separation, there's a curse that comes upon the whole world. And all these things that were of God, life and goodness and beauty and fruit and impact and success, all these things of future are suddenly ground to a halt. And now we see that 
the, the procreation of the human race, the ability to bring life from the woman, it still happens, but now it happens only through labor and pain and toil and terror and even is occasionally, more than occasionally, interrupted by death. And we see that the work, the toil, the work of the ground, which was supposed to just produce fruit, life was just supposed to bloom. Trees would just grow. Fruit would just grow. There would be nothing to inhibit them. It would be the easiest work you've ever seen. It would just be a joyous partnership of life-giving, just as the life-giving to a human life. Now we also see that Adam in his life-giving is now interrupted by weeds and toil and struggle and sweat and tears and blood and occasionally, more than occasionally, interrupted by death. And the curse is significant because the future has an end date now, doesn't it? There will be no more future. But at the very same moment, at the very same instant that the curse is given, we also see the hope given right at that moment. And it's not a surprise that this is true because Romans 15.4 tells us this is the purpose of Scripture. It says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Paul says to the Israelites, to the Jews, whatever was written to us, whatever is in the Old Testament, whatever we've seen from God was written for our instruction. Why? So that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The whole purpose of the Scriptures is to give hope. And that first piece of hope that we see in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, see how it's combined, it's connected. It's in the same breath as the curse. This is how important it is to God. It says, so the Lord said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. He's going to go on from there to talk about the labor. The childbirth will now be difficult and the fruit of the land will now be difficult. But in between those, he says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God gives this promise right at this moment as the curse falls, as they recognize they followed the wrong guru. When they listen to the serpent, God says of the serpent that you, everything that comes with the curse, everything that comes from you, the sin, the death, the curse, the entropy, the toil, the labor, It will always be nipping at the heels of humanity. It will be a pain. And it will be inconvenient and it will be painful. But, he says, the day will come when there will be a hero, someone who will be born through that toil and that labor, someone who will be born into the same suffering and into the curse that you exist under. Someone will be born who will be a hero and the best that the serpent will do will be to strike his heel, but the hero will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush sin, and he will crush death, and he will crush the curse, and he will crush all of the bad effects that have come from this moment. He will crush the curse of the fall, and he will win. And right at the very beginning, and this is how the Jews understood it. You can read the discussions of the of the religious leaders. You can read the prophets. You can read and you realize that from this very moment in this third chapter of the book, the way the Israelites understood what they were reading here was that in the midst of the curse, God gave them a hope. And the hope was that someday the hero would come and the hero would win. And the word that they used for hero, it's anointed. 
chosen one. Those are words we use for heroes too. It's Messiah. This is the word we know as Messiah. Messiah in the Hebrew, Christos or Christ in the Greek. It means the hero, the anointed one. And throughout the, throughout the entire scripture, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see that every judgment and every curse and every seeming defeat and every moment that God tells them of something bad, he's always framing it with a hope. He always gives them a hope to see along with it. He's determined that hope will be the thread of the story, that they will never lose hope as they go forward. Every moment that they fail and they're judged, God comes along behind and says, yes, but here's the hope. He wipes out the earth with a flood. What does he do after that? He presents the rainbow and says, here's the hope. Always, always, because he is a God of hope. He always introduces that there is a future and there is hope for the Israelites no matter how often they fail. Judaism is, first and foremost, a religion of hope. They're waiting, they're anticipating, they're expecting, and they're longing for the hero to come. This becomes the core, the DNA of every Jewish child. They grow up believing in a hope to come, waiting for the hope to come. This gives them endurance through an unbelievable litany of persecution and exile and suffering and oppression. And yet they still have hope because God insists that hope is constantly preached to them throughout the story. And always, always there is more. The story never ends in defeat. There's always the hope. There will be another day. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 11, we see this. In fact, the Lord Jeremiah is sometimes called the, the sorrowful prophet or the lamenting prophet or the prophet of tears because most of his messages are really sad because he's prophesying at a time when many of the Israelites do not understand how wicked they've become, how horrible they are to each other, how they oppress the poor and they kill one another and they're just awful. And, and he keeps telling them because of this, you do not reflect God well, you don't represent him well. Your purpose to show people what God is like is now being confused because people look at you and think, well, I guess God is oppressive and hates the poor and is mean and is licentious and is all these things. And so Jeremiah says, God is going to judge you so that everybody will know that God does not approve of this. And in that judgment, he says this, he says that you'll end up in Babylon. You will be exiled to Babylon and you will be there for 70 years. It's a long time in the, in the idea of the Hebrews, it's one generation till basically the generation that's sort of held responsible is gone. <laughs> But then Jeremiah, the prophet of tears, the prophet of bad news, even his prophecies are framed with hope. And it says this, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And we see that in the very midst of the, the judgment God insists on the thread of hope continuing to run through the story. Now it's true. This is written specifically to the Israelites. This is a specific context and a specific moment. But the beauty is that because this is the, these are the words of the same God of hope that we worship, this same principle applies to us. His story for us is one of hope and a future. 
because that's the God that he is. And this is just an example of so many examples as you go through the Old Testament. And the bottom line is that when we get to the New Testament, what we discover is that Christianity is not a new religion. Christianity is not something that just came out of nowhere. Jesus didn't create it. Paul didn't create it. It's not a religion that just suddenly popped up, which has no connection to anything else. The most accurate way to understand Christianity, it is, it is Judaism fulfilled in its hope. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is the recognition that this hope that had been promised to them, this hero that was to come, has come. Even the term Christianity comes from Christ. Christ means what? Messiah, hope, anointed one. Simply means Judaism fulfilled is Christianity. The hope to come. So we see in that sense that we live the same God, the same understanding. But then the question becomes, does that mean that we're all done? Do we no longer need hope? Because it happened. This, this is an interesting passage. One of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 22 says this. It explains how Jesus is the fulfillment, is the answer to the hope to the, that the Israelites were given. He says this, as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the son of God, Jesus, the hero who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, which means so be it, absolutely done, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both you and us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, Put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Christ is the yes. He is the fulfillment. He is the answer to all the hope of the Old Testament. It's amazing. But notice how this passage ends. The spirit in our hearts is what? A deposit. Guaranteeing what? Hope. <laughs> guaranteeing what is to come. There's more, isn't there? Even in this, we're not done. There's still hope of more. There's hope of something else. Judaism is a story of hope, but so is Christianity, the story of hope. You can argue that Christianity is the fulfillment of the hope of Judaism, but the church age, the Christian age, also is a story of hope. And why is this? Because our God is a God of hope. Because he's always doing something new and something better. Think about this for a moment. Because of Christ's fulfillment, because he's come, but because we still live in the world where we no longer truly belong and we still live in a flesh which is no longer truly ours, we live in this weird hybrid moment. We live, according to Paul, in the last chapter. The book is almost complete. It feels like a long chapter to us. It goes all the way back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But in the scheme of eternity, it's not truly that long. But we are in this last moment and in this last chapter, it's like things are being wrapped up and many things have been wrapped up, but not everything. Our identity is new. Our sin is forgiven. Our righteousness is assured. The Holy Spirit is united with our spirit. We are no longer separated from God and can approach him boldly at the throne of grace. And yet death still happens sorrow still comes upon us pain and suffering and disappointment and fear are still ever-present realities 
things that should be impossible in the presence of God because by definition, they are signs of a remaining distance from God. These things still plague us. We have access to the throne of God, says Paul. But Paul also says that we see everything dimly as through a veil. We do not have a full and complete understanding yet, says Paul. We don't have a full knowing yet, says Paul, of who God is. God has a full knowing of us, but we do not yet know him. He says we approach him, but there's still a distance. There's so much in this still fallen world to distract us and confuse us, to obscure the gospel. And we haven't shed our flesh and we haven't left the world to which we no longer truly belong. So we have this great taste, this great blessing, says Jesus. Blessed are those who have seen the Messiah. We have this great taste and this great blessing in seeing that Jesus is the name of the hope. We have this great blessing of knowing how Jesus fulfills the hope of the Jews and of the whole world. And we have this great realization that Jesus has transformed us in this hope. But we also still wait for the fullness of the time of completion, says Paul. The fullness of the revelation of who we are, says Paul. The fullness of the revelation of Jesus' love for us, says Paul. Paul describes the entire universe waiting for the day we will be revealed in all the glory that God has granted us. We wait for the day that everything will truly be made perfect. It's not perfect yet. Everything really will be okay. Doesn't mean it is now. Everything really will be made right and just and beautiful and true. And that is the hope we have. This is our hope. In our current hybrid state, we no longer wait for the Messiah to come save us from our sins, reveal himself. That has been done. That has been accomplished, but we do wait to see the perfection that comes. And it's amazing, I think, because we don't see it yet, because it's hard to believe in something we've never seen. It is amazing how many of us settle for the lie that this sort of hybrid notion is the best we can get. That there is no possibility of beauty without ugliness. That there can be no good without evil. That there can be no life without death is the lie we tell ourselves because it's all we've known. And we settle for the idea that, yes, Jesus has brought us some good things. But these bad things will always still be here. Perfection will never reach its place. But hear me clearly, I think this is the recourse for those who have no hope of perfection. We have the hope of perfect beauty with no ugliness. We have the hope of a perfect joy with no sorrow. We have the hope of a perfect goodness with no evil. We have the hope of a perfect life with no death or entropy or even separation. We have a perfect hope with no despair or disappointment. This is why Paul says to us, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so you not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I don't think he says this only because he wants us to not grieve as ones who will never see our loved ones again. I don't think he only means that we have a hope again of knowing that death isn't the end. That is a big, important thing, but I don't think that's all he means. I think he means we have the hope of things being made right. Of all the separation and all the consequence and all the ugliness and all the pain of which death is sort of the epitome if Christ can conquer even death, 
how can he not conquer all of the things which disappoint and distress us? And I think he's saying that. The rest of the world has no hope of perfection, of beauty, of holiness, of justice, of goodness, of light. Peter actually says it this way. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to our hope. Listen to the inheritance which we are going to receive. The hope we have of the inheritance to come to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A hope that is imperishable. It will never fade. It will never disappear. It will never disappoint. It will never become not enough. A hope that is undefiled. It won't be joy, but sorrow has to be there to tell you how joy is. No, that's a defilement of sorrow. It won't be life with constant reminders of the temporariness of mortality because that's a defilement. It won't be goodness with reminders of the evil that once existed in the universe because that's a defilement. It will be purely good and purely beautiful and purely life-affirming. And there won't be anything that will cause discontent or disappointment. It's amazing that it is impossible for us to write a story like this, isn't it? And I don't just mean because it's boring. I mean because we have no way to comprehend it. When we see a story in which there's a place that is a utopia, we always know it's not really, right? We know that in that story, what's going to be revealed is the, the hideous underbelly of this so-called utopia. But that's a failure of our own imagination, which is a failure of not having seen it ourselves. So that is why it is so hard for us to grasp this, to truly believe this, because like other things we've talked about, whether it's our purpose of delight or our identity or whatever it is, this hope, this idea, this imperishable, undefiled and unfading hope it's not what we see. It's a future that doesn't look like our present. You can't simply take our present and amplify the good and say that's the future. No, you have to take the present and remove everything that we know to be a necessary part of the present <laughs> to arrive at our future. That's why it's a future of hope. Paul describes this. He says this in the whole universe. He says we know that the whole creation has been groaning as, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know, thinking back to the curse, right, where the woman gives birth, but now it's only through pain and labor and suffering. But at the end of it, what's produced? Life and joy. And a life and joy that's so astounding that the mother often, especially today, you can argue whether they even had a choice back then, but the mother often chooses to do it again. Well, the universe, he says, is like that. We are just in this long labor period. And there's a lot of pain. But the end of it will be life. He says, we know the whole creation has been groaning is in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have received some of that hope fulfilled, but it's just the beginning. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. For in this hope we are saved. 
who hopes for what they already have. If you're just hoping for a better version of this world, that's not the hope we're promised. We're promised a future of hope, which is unlike anything we've seen. And that's why we hope, because we haven't seen it. Hope is in something that is coming. You know, a lot of the things we've looked at, we've been reminded that the the Christian fanatic, the way that these treasures really come and become apparent to us is by believing in the things that are not seen. It's by counting on a Jesus, on a Lord, on a Messiah, on a Savior, on a Christ who is not seen. Counting on the, the eternal nature of the world that is not seen. Believing these things to be real and true and permanent leads to this fanaticism. But it leads to these treasures. And hope is no different. Hope is faith for the future that you have not seen. See, there is a, there's a longing described in these verses, right? There's an anticipation for something you don't see. If we've been in these labor pains all along, of course we don't know what the life produced will look like yet. This is a hope. It's a, hope is essentially a pleasant expectation born of faith. But I want you to think about something because this is the thing that excites me the most. And this is where I want you to see that this may be the greatest treasure of all. Think about this. During the Old Testament time, we discussed that the hope was longing for a hero. It was the longing for redemption that was going to come through the Messiah. Now we see in the church age that it's the hope is a longing for the perfection that the hero brings, the completion of his mission. But then the question becomes, does this mean there will be no need for hope when perfection is reached? How is hope even possible in perfection? If there is no discontent, no despair, and no disappointment, how can it be that there will be any need for hope going forward? We'll be happy but will there be anything to look forward to? We've already reached that perfection. And I want to argue that if your assumption is no, there can be no hope when everything is perfect. You're making the same error we made when we said that there can be no beauty without ugliness. Just because we've never seen hope in a perfect environment doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think scripture gives us a hint of how hope can in fact exist where there is no despair, where there is no disappointment, where there isn't even discontent. In fact, I know this to be true, not because I've seen it, but for two reasons. One, because our God is a God of hope and has been for all eternity and will continue to be so. He will not cease to be a God of hope. He didn't cease to be a God of hope just because his life is perfect, did he? But number two is 1 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13. One of the Corinthians 13. (laughs) I have second, but I think it's first. Yeah, I just wrote it down wrong here. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you. That's like stuck in my pajamas. I know. So this is the passage after he talks about love. This is the love passage where he talks all about how important love is. And this is, in fact, the passage where after that, Paul reminds us that we see only in part. That he says we're like children and we don't see the fulfillment of everything yet. And we only see Christ dimly. So as good as things are, we don't see it all. I think part of his point is that we don't even understand the love of God in its fullness yet. It's much more beautiful than we know. But then, after he says that, that we only see partially, and we only see immaturely as a child, he then says, but there will be a day when we will be mature, and when when we reach that day, when we are in heaven, when we're standing in eternity, he says, this is what we will discover. 
These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love makes sense. This whole passage is about love. When we get to heaven, there will be no fear. There will be nothing keeping us from understanding, being face-to-face all of all times with the love of Christ. We understand that. Even faith makes sense. If you think of faith as being a dependence on God, there will still be a need for that dependence. There will still be a dependence. In fact, it can still be a conviction of things not seen. Even in heaven, there will be unseen things, but there will be no doubt. There will be confidence. Our faith will be without question and confusion and doubt, but it will still be faith because not everything that we believe in will be in front of us visually. In fact, I don't know. It's really hard to know what's going to be physical and visible. But hope? Hope? He says hope will be lasting for eternity. How can hope last for eternity? How can, doesn't that mean that we have to be in a place where we think things can get better? And how can you go from perfect to better perfect? How can hope exist in eternity? How can the be perfect made better? Well, here's how I think scripture explains it to us. The best we can in our dimly veiled partial understanding. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. There's the hope. There's the fulfillment we have seen. We've been made alive by the grace of God. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages. Which coming ages? All the coming ages, every age to come, every moment going forward from now through all of eternity, this is what God's plan is. In fact, it says, believe it or not, this is why he saved us. This this is amazing. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It says that for every moment, for every day, I don't know how time is counted in heaven or for outside of time, but I do think there will still be a sense of linear movement because that's how we're created. So regardless of what it looks like, it's fair to talk about in terms of time because Paul does and it's all we know to do. And it, and it seems here that what Paul is, well, it doesn't seem, it's pretty clear, that what Paul is saying is in the coming ages, God has brought us up to sit next to him, right? It's like a dad who seats him next to him. Why? So he can be nice to you. God has brought us up, seated him next to us so that for the rest of eternity, he can show us his kindness and his grace. And here's what I want you to think about. We've talked about the fact that all God's attributes are infinite. They are complete. They are without diminishment. So our God is not only infinitely kind, but he's infinitely creative. And as such, that means he's creating infinitely all the time. And that means for all of eternity, every moment to moment to moment, he will be finding new ways, new ways to show us just how kind he is. Each kindness won't be better than the perfect kindness before it, but it also won't be worse. It won't be diminished. It won't be less. And it won't be the same. It'll be different. See, for something to be unperishable and undefiled, It has to always be equally valuable and strong. If it loses its luster, it's already become defiled and perished a little bit. Yes? For the kindness of Christ, the grace of God to be imperishable and undefiable as a treasure for us, it has to always be new. But that's what our God does. 
He does new stuff all the time. It seems like it's in our nature to crave new things. Have you noticed that? We find something we like, and after a while, we want it to be new. <laughs> right? It gets, it gets different. We crave new things. One of the beautiful things about marriages that work is they don't work because they stay the same, do they? They work because they're always new. <laughs> they're always changing. This is true of any relationship. Great friendships. They don't stay the same. What was great about your friendship yesterday is not the same thing that's great about your friendship 10 years from now. What if this craving for new things is not a flaw? What if it's not part of the fall? What if it's not part of a, something that just refuses to be satisfied in us? What if this is a truth of God reflected in our life? What if every single moment of every day, God delights in giving us a new and different picture of his infinite grace and kindness? What if in the course of eternity, we will never question or grow weary or grow tired of God's kindness, not only because of our improved natures, which is true, but what if that will also be true because God will just never give us a chance to be tired, to doubt, to question, to wonder if he can do something new because he's doing it right at the moment we're wondering. What if this will be true, that we will be confidently expecting new revelations of kindness at every moment, always in front of us? And what if we will be right to have that confident expectation? I think that's what hope in a perfect universe looks like. Yes, we all have something to look forward to, not because it's bad now, because it's great now, but our God will do something equally great and vastly different a second from now, and a second from that, and a second from that. So our God is a God of hope, not just for the Old Testament as he, we waited for the Messiah to come, not just for the church age as we wait for the perfection to come, but for perfection throughout all of eternity, our God is a God of hope, and we will be people with a future of hope. Not only do I mean by that that we will have a hopeful future, that we can hope in a good future, I actually mean that our future will be filled with hope every moment. Expectation, anticipation, excitement, and joy in what's to come. And if you look at that and that sounds tiring and wearying to you, I want to remind you that's just because you don't know what it's like. You've only experienced joy and expectation that is a little bit forced and a little bit put upon and a little bit drummed up and a lot disappointing. <laughs> We have never experienced this hope of a future of hope. <laughs> but we can believe it. Because we do know of a God who does new things. We have a hope. We have a future that is not only hopeful, but literally one of perpetual hope. Never disappointed. Never discontent. Never fearful. Never doubting. Never tired. Like many of the treasures, the future of hope itself is given to all believers, regardless of our fanaticism or devotion to Christ. But the true treasure now for the fanatic is that he surrenders himself to this expectation. He learns to separate the disappointments of this earth from the reality of Christ, yes. And he learns to rejoice in Christ, yes, even when the world says no. Learn to expect and live in a place of hope and even hope in more hope. And always look ahead to the perfect day of beautiful, complete perfection and enjoying an eternity of Christ's kindness forever. Honestly, Scripture, I, don't, I, I thought about this, but we're not going to do it. It would take a lot of time. 
Scripture tells us there are a lot of benefits to having such a perspective of hope. It tells us that there's perseverance that comes from such a hope. It tells us that endurance comes from such a hope. It tells us that strength comes from such a hope. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We're told the joy comes from hope. First John 3 tells us that even a life of greater purity, that we live a better life when we have this hope. It's interesting to me that we're wrapping up this series with the future of hope and we're wrapping up just in time for what? What happens next week? Palm Sunday. Sunday. We're wrapping up just in time for Palm Sunday, which is followed by Easter. And you guys know these are extremely important moments of celebration for Christians. And one of the things that's most interesting about this celebration is right in the middle. Well, not right in the middle, but between Palm Sunday and Easter, we have what we call Good Friday. And that's a very peculiar name for that holiday. Because Good Friday is the day of Jesus' death. It's the day that appeared to be the most momentous defeat that the universe could suffer. The literal death of God. Why call it good? Because it truly is. Because it's a reminder that our God is one of hope. And even in the most definitive of defeats, even in the bleakest of moments, it turns out it's only the seed of the hope for the glory to come. Jesus' death, it turns out, is the hope of mankind. It appeared to be a defeat, and it was merely a little bite on the heel. And the resurrection is the crushing of the serpent. His resurrection is the yes to all future fulfillments of his grace and kindness. And so we'll move from here tonight, and we'll try to capture a sense of what it means that we live in a religion of hope. We'll meet next week for Palm Sunday. Look at the hope that the people had then and how some of it was misplaced in things they wanted to happen in the here and now and some of it was properly placed in things they wanted to happen for eternity. We'll look at the difference in what those hopes produced in their lives and in their emotions. Good Friday, we'll have an online service. Uh, We won't meet anywhere, but we'll do something online both probably through Zoom and Facebook. We'll send you information if you want to be part of that. On Sunday, I have typically always done a sunrise service. I've done a video, and I'll do that again this year. I am thinking about, and I'll let you know next week for sure, I'm going to do a video, and I always go to a certain place to do it. What I might do is say, if you want to come, you're welcome. But I'm going to do it out there anyway. Lorraine's shaking her head. She's not coming. And that's, and that's, and that's 100% okay. And that's how I want you to see it. No preparations will be made to make it easier for you to be there. I won't set up chairs, you know, and it's outside. I won't set up chairs. I won't have childcare. I won't have food. I won't have coffee. I will do what I always do, which is come out and preach a message. And if you just feel like you want to get spiritual bonus points and come out in the early morning, then you will get no spiritual bonus points, but you can come out anyway. And then, and then at the Sunday evening service, we'll uh, continue looking at the hope of Easter and what it's about. I'd like to close uh, with uh, the benediction of, from First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This actually picks up right after Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, where he is talking about recognizing that people who died, will see them again. They're just asleep, he says. 
For a Christian, death is just a sleep. I really even like C.S. Lewis kind of indicates that for a Christian, death is not the end. Death isn't, uh, it, death is like the beginning. It's like the prologue. Our life was the prologue and our death is simply the beginning of our life. I think you can go even further because it's eternal and you could say that death is, you know, when we come back from our death, that's really just the first word of the first sentence of the first page of the prologue. We can actually go further than that because it's infinite. <laughs> but that's the point. This moment here leads to something greater. But after he says that about recognizing death is not the end, and therefore our grief is not without hope. We can still grieve. We can still be sad because it's happening now and we're separated now. But we have hope that we'll see them again. He goes on to show why I think he's not just talking about the death of the loved one, but there's more hope to come. And I just want to read this as our benediction for you to think about. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.